Yep. Okay. It's a weird word. I've learned I've learned this today. Milk toast. Milk toast. Milk toast. I have a soundboard, Tom. Milk toast. Oh joy. <laughs> is that what this has been missing? Hi, Steph. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Pretty great. How are you doing today? Pretty great. I'm I'm doing very well. I like that you're going with great, though. Most people say good or I'm all right, but we got a full great there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's been a good week. It's Friday, and I love our Friday, so I'm going to go with great. Indeed. So what have you been up to this week that uh, makes it so great? So this week I am wrapping up a project. So the project that I've been on for the last couple of months uh, working with React and TypeScript. This is the closure of that project, and then I'll be moving on to my next adventure. And wrapping up a project always has its interesting moments to it of moving on from working with some great people to then transitioning to the next team. But it's also, I go into a bit of, I don't want to call it cleanup mode, but it's more of like, how can I carry this on for the next team once mm-hmm. I'm no longer here? How can I transition all of this work for the next team? So part of this week has been wrapping up some feature work and then also thinking about what is the next developer after me going to pick up and what are they going to see from there? So kind of you to uh, pay it forward like that. One of the stories I tell myself whenever I'm trying to think in that mode is that I also might be that future developer. So there's even a selfish form of it. But I also like, you ever rediscover your own code and you don't know what it does? Oh, yeah. You don't know what it says? I try and internalize that whenever it happens to be like, I need to be kinder to everyone. Like, I knew this at one point, And still this code is harder to read than I want it to be, which is why I feel like people sometimes point out my code and they're like, wow, you really extract a lot of methods and name a lot of things. Like, you've said that you can recognize my code. I didn't know if that was a compliment <laughs> or an insult, but... That's one of my favorite parts that I discovered getting into coding a couple years back is that everyone has their unique style when it comes to coding. And I thought that was so cool that when I'm going through a code base, if I've worked with someone long enough, I can easily definitively say like, oh, I know who wrote this. Like it just has their, I know the way that they think and the way that they write their code. And I think that's really neat how personalities can shine through in that manner. I've had both of those moments going through with the code where I've seen code and not understood it and been like, oh, this seems a bit complicated or I'm, I wonder like why they did this. And I did the get blame and realized I was the author of that code. So I've certainly had that moment. I've also had that moment earlier on in my career where I was still leveling up and then I found some code and I was like, oh yeah, it's like, this is, this is really nice. It's well tested. It's good. And I get blamed and I was like, oh, oh, I did this. That's great too. <laughs> So I've, I've had both moments. Thankfully. It is nice to have both experiences there. It's a, I actually want to loop back to what you were saying about you were describing in positive terms the fact that you can recognize different individuals' coding styles in a code base. As you were saying that, I was realizing like, A, I, I feel like to a certain degree I can do that, especially if I've worked with people for a long time. And if they have, like some people tend to work in a more functional style. And so that's a thing that will tip me off that like, mm-hmm. oh, that was likely this person working on it. Or the amount of one-line methods, some people tend more towards that. But... I would actually offer that I think an ideal is that you can't tell whose code it is. Mm. And so, you would prefer it that way if you can't tell. Well, so I'm, I'm saying this both as a statement and as a question. Okay. I think this is a thing that I believe, but I want to explore it with you and see if, if we come to an agreement here. So things like prettier, mm-hmm. taking stylistic choices out of the picture. So an auto formatter that just like in Elm, everyone's code has the same shape. Mm-hmm. A given syntactic construct will have the same shape in the code. But also then, ideally, we have shared values around 
how much we should be extracting code, how much we should be breaking things apart into small objects, where those lines are drawn. In a Rails app, per se, it could be like, do we have app queries? That's a pretty common thing for us to introduce query objects in Rails projects. And so if I were to jump into another ThoughtBot managed Rails project, I would expect to see that. I wouldn't be surprised by that. And it wouldn't necessarily indicate to me who was coding. But I don't know how, how much individual expression is good in the code and how much sameness and what's the optimization there? I don't think it's a hundred percent the same, but I think it's probably a high bar and ideally over time heading towards more consistency, but maybe that's not true. So it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but I do like the idea that one, I love when we have formatting tools and we don't have to think about that. That's something that I never want to have to think about. And when I have that, when I have Prettier, that just fixes. Like being on this project with Prettier has been amazing and I'm going to miss Prettier so much. I know it's coming to Ruby, but I don't think it's quite ready. Stay tuned. Okay. Very okay. soon we'll be talking to people about this. I need to check out that project because I'm, I'm excited for that because I'm going to miss it when I go on to my next project and I'm not using Prettier anymore. So in those terms, I don't want to be able to recognize someone's code in terms of like syntax or even in terms of where like I can tell like there's a particular style that they've written. It's more in the nuance of it. Like maybe it's the way that they've named something. Like if they've been very explicit, they've been very careful with their naming. It's more in those ways that I like seeing someone's personality come through than necessarily in all the different ways that you could implement where like with most thought botters, if I'm looking at our code, it would be a little bit harder for me to distinguish like which thought botter that was. Like I can look at code and I can make a guess and be like, I'm pretty sure someone at ThoughtBot worked on this code based on the logic that they've created and the way that they've tested it and the way that they've extracted their code and named it. But then once I've worked with someone long enough, I can still see a little bit of that person in that code based on perhaps it's the naming, perhaps it's just like the way they've written their test or how flushed out their tests are. There's those small nuances that I can see. But I think I agree with you. You're right. I, I wouldn't want to see a huge difference in code based on personality because then that's tough to adjust to. I think there's probably something to be said for if someone were to join ThoughtBot and be acclimating to our coding style, then to them probably most ThoughtBot code looks the same. But over time, if you work with, like if someone were to work with you and I for an extended period, for a while, probably both of our code samples would just look like ThoughtBot code. Like mm -hmm. there's no lets in the R spec and there's extracted methods and naming is roughly similar. But then over time, I'm guessing that they would start to pick up and be like, oh, okay. Steph tends to go like this sometimes and Chris goes like that sometimes. And I think that's fine and good. But I like that there is that ThoughtBot standard that we mm -hmm. have. And I think that's true. I, th I think that's how we work in general. And I in terms of the question that I asked of, like, is this an ideal to head towards of the sameness? I think we probably strike a pretty good balance there. But it also sort of gets at the, the question of, like, is coding a creative endeavor? Or is it more of plumbing and connecting the pieces and more of like a construction project? And I think it varies on a day-to-day -day basis. But I would be sad if it were not at all a creative endeavor. So Yeah, I would advocate that it's creative. So back when, before I started programming, and I was doing a different job and I was working in marketing. Uh, my brother is a front-end developer and I thought about what I was going to do next because I needed a new career. And I thought about what he was doing because he really enjoyed his work, but he is very good when it comes to visuals and colors and designs. And that's how I saw web development was like, you have to be very artistic and almost 
interior designer, like you just have this mind for this type of work. And I thought, well, I'm not that person. I can't pick a wall color to save my life when I'm painting a room. So I didn't think that I was cut out for web development. And then I found that there was the more back-end focused development. And it made me happy to realize that that's still so creative. You're solving problems and you're solving problems on both sides, working for like more front-end or back-end code. But it made me happy to realize that I don't have to be great at like the layout and the design to be really creative in my career. Yep. I resonate with all of those feelings, especially the ones about not having the perhaps the visual creative aptitude. Although I do wonder, is that like a self-limiting belief that we both have? If we were to spend some time and study a little bit of color theory and layout and I wonder how much for me personally is aptitude versus how much is I've not really spent any time on that. There are plenty of things that I was terrible at, and then I spent a bunch of time on them, and I'm better at them now. I don't know. It's The idea of self-limiting beliefs is a thing that I, I poke at from time to time, and I enjoy. Like, for a long time, I'm not a runner was just true. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to test that theory and prove to myself that I'm not a runner, and I did that by running a 5K. And I was like, oh, never mind. This is great. And I'm still not a good runner by any means, but I like to do it, and I do it pretty regularly. I guess I didn't have aptitude for that because, again, I'm not good at it. So maybe the same would be true on the visual design front, but just the thing that I think about. That's fair. I like how you called it. What do you say? Self-limiting? Self-limiting belief. Self-limiting yeah. belief. Yes, that's a really fair point. And I'm I'm very guilty of that where, like I just said, like I can't do this. And I think you're right where it's not that I can't do it, but that, that is not somewhere I've chosen to invest my time to really develop that skill. So good catch. I, I don't know. That's, you know. It's just a question that I sometimes ask. I'm incredibly jealous when I look at designers in the office and they'll have a notebook and they'll just be sketching things. And I'm legitimately very jealous of their ability to work in that medium, their ability to express themselves in that way. And actually just the, the artifact, that sketch that they created, I look at them, I'm like, those are so nice. I wish <laughs> I want to do that. But again, I've, I've never put any, like, I should take a drawing course sometime. Mm-hmm. Just do that. Like cooking was another thing that I'm not a cook. I don't know how to do that. And then I was like, oh, no, you know what? I'm going to take a cooking course and that might help. And it turns out, yes, it helped a lot. It is funny how we'll take a skill and we'll contribute it to a talent. Mm-hmm. And it certainly can be a talent, but we'll see someone be really good at something. And we're like, oh, well, they're just they're gifted and they have the skill to do this. And that almost diminishes it a little bit to not highlight the fact that they have dedicated time to being really good at the skill. And so they've gotten there by those means. So I like the idea of instead of saying that I feel like I can't do something, being honest and saying, well, I just haven't chosen to spend my time learning that particular skill. And instead, I've invested it elsewhere. It's kind of like when people mention that they don't have time for stuff or if they've just like, I don't have time to do this. It's like, well, you you have the same amount of hours in a day as everyone else. It just depends on where you want to invest that time. Indeed. I've simultaneously had sort of two evolving thoughts around that. One is that I need to be more careful with how I allocate my time and that I need to do less. Like I've stopped doing as much side coding in terms of actually building a project and trying to maintain a thing like I have a system for managing my personal email or something like that. That's a thing that I would do a lot in the past, but I'm recognizing like software maintenance and upgrading versions and all of that. It's just I don't want to allocate time to that. And that's been really helpful for me. Another thing, though, that's been really helpful is there's a phrase or a concept that I've adopted of often it will take less time than you're scared it will but more time than than the none that you've given it. It's like, you're right, mm. I, I don't have 100 hours to invest in learning a new programming language. It's like, 
what if you just give it two hours on the weekend and see just do the like first tutorial and see if it sparks an interest or see if it captures your attention and for very many things i've tried to like just time box and be like what if i just spend a few minutes and see what that's like and then i'm like oh okay and i now see how i could move forward with this and i can choose whether or not to but those have been useful things in terms of how to allocate and manage time and it's a precious precious resource yeah. Well, that circles back to one of our more thought core beliefs when it comes to being able to scope things. And I think that is true in our personal lives. If you can scope something, if you have a big goal in mind, but if you can scope it back to be like, well, what if I just spend 30 minutes on this today? Or even if I only have 10 minutes to spend on it today, that's still 10 more minutes that you've gotten to invest in something you're interested in. And then you'll know more for the next day of where you're going. And that's so true for how we approach our projects. I had a a very strong reminder this past week on a feature that I was working on on how to scope work that I'm doing because I picked up a ticket that seemed very achievable in one pass at first glance. And then as I started to dive into it, I realized there were a lot of nuances and caveats to it. And initially, I fell into that sunk time fallacy, mm. where I was like, well, I've already gotten this far, I can just keep going. And then as soon as my PR started hitting to the point that it was changing more than like 10 files, and then 15 <laughs> files, and I was like, oh, this is... And you weren't done yet. And I still wasn't yeah. done. So I was at that point where I needed to recover and find out what I could split out into a smaller reasonable PRs. I'm a very big believer that PRs should be reviewable in the sense that they don't take someone too much time to go through. I want them to be as easy as possible for someone to say yes to. So I agree entirely. But how do you determine if something is reviewable or or of reasonable size? Or when do you break them down? I don't have a specific size in mind for a PR. But I do want to keep it as constrained to the changes. Like if I'm working on a particular feature, all the changes that I make in that PR, I want to be directly related to that specific change. And if there's anything else, like if I needed to refactor beforehand before I could make that change, then I would like to issue that PR first with the note that this is going to make the next PR easier. If there's some other changes that I saw that I wanted to make along the way, I'm going to separate those out into a separate PR. So it's more about focus for me. I want the PR to be very focused and intentful. So when someone comes along, they know exactly what they're reviewing and they have a clear picture and then it's easy for them to provide feedback. I absolutely agree with everything that you've said there. And I I wanted to sort of get at some of the strategies and maybe we can even come back and talk more about the strategies. Mm -hmm. My current working situation has really stretched that idea for me. So I'm working within a context where myself and Edward Lovell are the two developers on the project, but we're somewhat isolated from developers at the rest of the organization that we're working with. It's a much larger organization that has a lot of standards and structure around code review and around Mm -hmm. how code gets added to their platform. And so I'm particularly writing the TypeScript side of things, TypeScript and Angular, and I'm not allowed to merge code without getting a TypeScript review. But no one on our team can do that. We don't have the necessary approval level within the way that they structure code review. And so I'm ending up having to reach out. They have a basically a queue type system or like a mailing list of good Samaritans within the organization that will come in and review code for other people. But as a result, my reviews are now taking multiple hours in a good case and sometimes more than a day. And it's even stretched out a little bit longer than that in rare cases. And it has been such a stark reminder of why we prioritize rapid code review because it has started to really affect the way that I think about the work. I'm starting to question whether or not a refactoring is worth it because I know that it has a cost. I'm starting to think about like, can I just do these two things in one PR? 
because I want to get them in. I know we're trying to build towards something at the end of the week, and I know that the rest of the system needs this change to be in place. Otherwise, we've actually gotten into an unfortunate case where there's like branch off a branch off a branch yeah, because code review got backed up on both sides, the API and the front end. And I tend to work on projects with ThoughtBotters, and we prioritize code review very, very highly. So as a result, this is not something that I've experienced a lot. Something that I've talked about and always felt was a virtue and something that we should be driving towards is fast code review to enable small PRs, focused PRs, et cetera. But it's been really interesting being on the other side and feeling the pain of not having that. Is there anything you feel in control of that you'd be able to change for that? Because I don't see a, a clear different direction you could take other than like branching off of PRs to that way you can keep working while the code is still under review. From a technical perspective, we've had to go for workarounds like that. From a human perspective, we tried to make friends. And so we've gone out and found some individuals who have the ability to review the TypeScript code and like, hey, so this is our situation. If there's a, you know, certainly feel free to say no, but if you can provide a little bit faster code review. So I've when I have a change that's ready now, and if it's one that I feel is will be blocking of other changes or is a little bit larger or anything like that, I may reach out to the person, one of a few people on chat and say like, hey, uh, do you by any chance, like, do you think before lunch you might be able to get to a review on this? But it also is forcing me to be all the more purposeful in making my code reviewable. So in terms of what's the description that I'm providing in the PR summary, mm -hmm. what is the information that I'm providing to the person who's reading it? Like I'll inline comment on my own PR to say, I see that, yes, this is a little bit weird, but here's the reason, here's the explanation, which is also in the commit message because I feel very strongly about that mm -hmm. uh, in addition. But it's made me be even more proactive about how I'm trying to provide the best review experience for the reviewer, pave that path for them so that they can come along and provide the high-level feedback. But it's been interesting. I love that you use the term make friends and finding others to help you out. Because I do think that's a, an important aspect of what we do. So when we have something that we're ready, that we think is ready to be merged and to push along and so we can continue our work, it is in our best interest and part of our job to then figure out a way for to push that work forward. And maybe that means finding other people that can help us and reaching out to them and being very proactive instead of sitting back, be like, well, I did my part. I pushed up a PR. Now I'm just going to sit here and, and wait and hope someone comes along and look at it. I love that mindset of going out and being very proactive to find someone. And then I noticed like in ThoughtBot Slack channels, we'll often swap with people mm -hmm. and say, hey, if you could review this PR, I'd be happy to review something for you in return, making those trades. I think that's a, a great mindset to have. I also like the other ideas you have for making PRs reviewable, because that's something that I'll do as well. The great commit messages. I also love when people include demos, like a little GIF mm -hmm. of whatever code, if they're adding a feature and it's helpful to show it off, if there's some... Which it almost always is. Typically there is, yeah. <laughs> it's very rare I don't have a, a good use to add a GIF to my PR. I'll sometimes just do a screenshot if it's a simple, like I've added a new page, but it's not terribly dynamic yet. Mm -hmm. It's just like a list page. I'll still add a screenshot there. But I often go to a GIF if there's any sort of interactive or a flow, like whatever mm -hmm. the feature spec does, just go click through and do that and record it in a GIF. And I'll occasionally do like a, a diagram as well. So if it's a more backend change, but it's like, oh, this API needs to communicate to this one and then do this thing and then this or a sequence or something like that. Visuals are helpful. Joel has some fantastic blog posts on visuals. I really like some of his writing that he's been doing, talking about using drawing and visuals as a way to think and then a way to communicate. And it's good stuff. Yeah, he, he does. He's got some exceptional stuff in that area. Yeah, I feel like it helps set context when you come to a PR. Like you're being told a bit of a story as soon as you come to that PR and you want to know as much upfront as possible. So when you dive in, you have that context to go off. So anything that can help paint that picture 
It's great. So what else is going on with your project? We had to do some load testing this week, so we're getting to the point that we're actually going to try and push a non-trivial number of users into the the app that we're building. And the thing that we're building is sort of a question and answer survey type experience, but it's got some real-time aspects. And so as a presenter is showing a questionnaire sort of thing, people on their devices or on their computers, uh, phones or computers or whatever, they're going to be answering the question. And so we have... Mm. Lots of polling, basically, is the answer to how we've implemented this. Uh, we investigated a couple things like server sent events, which were new to me. Are you familiar with server sent events? No, I'm not familiar with that. So WebSockets exists, and WebSockets are bidirectional, and it's a different protocol, if I'm not mistaken. So WebSockets are like a fancy other thing, and that's the way chat-type applications are often implemented. Mm-hmm. Server sent events are a simpler addition to, I want to say it's a JavaScript API, and that's where this thing exists, but it's a way for the server to send information down to the client. So it's single directional, only from the server down to the client, mm-hmm. but it allows for like streaming updates. So if the like count might slowly be going up, you could use a server send event. You don't need a full WebSocket. You don't need the bidirectional thing. It goes over HTTP, which is nice. It's a little more straightforward. But unfortunately, in our case, it had a limitation that people's devices would be going to sleep. So if we just sent the event, it wouldn't be enough because if the person's device is asleep when we send the event, they won't know. Okay. Polling has the effect that like whenever their device wakes back up, it's going to kick back in in the polling and it's going to ask for the current state of things. And that's what we're trying to mm-hmm. send down to them. So explored service and events, couldn't do those. So we've got a lot of polling in this app. And the use case that we're getting towards is probably like 100, maybe 150 people all interacting with this web app at the same time, which with a one second polling interval means that we're going to be getting like 100, 150 requests a second, which is a non-trivial number. It's got to do some database stuff. It's writing and reading on each of those for reasons that are questionable, but here we are. But so we wanted to check and see how things are going. Unfortunately, the runtime, the application deployment that we're doing is uh, Google App Engine is actually where the code's deployed from like a platform perspective. But then there's another layer of authentication, single sign-on, a bunch of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Security, firewall, I'm just throwing a bunch of words out there. (laughs) But there's stuff, and frankly, we don't necessarily understand it terribly well. It's a little bit outside of our control. And it is very difficult to work around. Uh, Like, you cannot curl this application. It is impossible, as far as I can tell. Because it's behind that firewall or for other reasons? It seems like they're using certificates in a way that I don't understand. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. In general, if I'm working with an app and I want to try and, say, load test it or something like that, I can go into the network tab in Chrome and say, copy as curl for the request. And that's going to pull out the headers and the cookies and everything. So it is essentially the identical request that I'm sending. And I've never had that not work mm-hmm. because it's got everything in it. It has the headers. It has the cookies. The cookies tend to have the auth hidden in there. Even if it's a JWT or something like that, that's going to be in a header or a cookie or whatever. But in this case, there's something else that does, like, curl can't speak. It's some self-signed certificate, something, again, I don't fully understand what's going on there, but... Basically, the app only works in the browser, in the fully real environment. So we tried a bunch. There's some internal load testing tools that they have to try and get around this, but they weren't working for us. And we're getting down to the end of the time that we have in order to actually like verify that the system works and verify that auto-scaling and all that's going to happen. So Edward had the bright idea of, like, what if we just open a bunch of Chromes? And I'm like, let's... Okay, let's give it a try. And Edward found the necessary Stack Overflow snippet that allows you to open a fresh Chrome instance. So Mm -hmm. it's got its own profile and things like that. And 
just to clarify, this is necessary because you cannot send more than six requests from Chrome. Chrome has that limit hard built into it to a given domain. Interesting. Yeah, I was about to ask why you needed a snippet right, to yeah, open up yeah. the Chrome. Oh, that there's seemed layers. questionable we just, at first. <laughs> each bit of this, we keep being like, okay, what if we, that doesn't, oh no. And so we tried doing it in Chrome and the thing that we tried was just like, just send the request, like do a set interval loop and go as fast as you can and make as many requests as possible. And very quickly in the network tab, we saw that Chrome was stalling the requests. Mm. So there's a filled in gray bar that says stalled, which is Chrome locally queuing the requests before it sends them to the server based on respecting that six connection limit, which HTTP2, as far as I know, has even reduced that connection limits to a smaller number. It's interesting that it's six. That's the cutoff. Six, six is Chrome's. Firefox, as far as I understand it, has changed it and made it user configurable. Chrome has no configuration for this. You're stuck at six. That's it. I think HTTP2 has a limit of two connections, but that's because it contains some stuff to allow for multiplexing and mm -hmm. other things. So like, you don't necessarily need a bunch of connections. That's, that's not how you're supposed to do HTTP2. Mm -hmm. But with HTTP1, which is where we're at on this, Chrome was being rude and stopping, or good. I don't know. It depends. Chrome is doing its job. Chrome is a fantastic piece of browsers in general. I, I keep saying this on like every episode, but man, browsers impress me. But in this case, it was not fun. So we ended up opening on each of our computers 40 instances, somewhere in the range of 40. And for each one that we opened, we had to like go to the app and then go through the SSO flow. And then we had a little snippet of JavaScript that would fire off a request, get back the promise, so using the fetch API, and then in the promise, the then would enqueue the next request. And so we were basically saying, go as fast as you can, but no faster. So not a set interval, which would try and potentially go faster mm -hmm. than that instance of Chrome's limit. Mm -hmm. We would instead respect Chrome's wishes and only enqueue one request when the previous one had completed. Which is also more reflective of how users will be using it. They're not going to be trying to... Like if you're respecting um, Chrome's wishes or? We're using an interval, so it's not exactly reflective. Okay. So the interval is 500 milliseconds or 1,000 milliseconds at this point. I think we bumped it up to. So we're not going as fast as we can in the client. We're pulling. Like, we don't need to be that fast in our updates. It can lag behind by about a second. That's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But it is using an interval there. But that interval is slow enough that all requests are finishing well within that. So the interval version is basically like sending a request, getting a response, waiting a little bit, and then sending the next one. The thing that we set up is go as fast as you can while respecting the speed limit of the highway. What were you watching at this point to make sure that the load balancing was working? So the, there's a dashboard within Google App Engine, which actually has some really nice auto-scaling features, which I've not really worked with. I haven't spent much time on App Engine. Typically, we're on Heroku, which mm -hmm. in my experience, and I don't know if this has changed anytime recently, but Heroku doesn't have any auto-scaling built in. You can scale. You can say, scale it up to 5, scale it up to 10. But I have typically used Higher Fire. Have you used Higher Fire? Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. I was thinking that Heroku has it, right. but you're right. I was imagining that because I'm used to using yeah, Higher Fire. I actually forget how Higher Fire works, what it was using as the, the metric to scale off of. Maybe it's requests per second or something like that. On App Engine, it uses CPU load. So you can say if any instance gets past 60% is the default CPU load, then scale up, and then you can give it a range, say like, four is the minimum instances and 20 is the max. So you can scale up to 20. And so we were watching both the throughput of the application, how many requests per second was it actually dealing with? Um, because the application would sort of 
by virtue of taking longer to respond to a request, would slow down each of our clients. And it got to the point where our machines were just kind of slowing down and they were taking a little bit longer to like read the data back and then try and enqueue the next request. So it became like having the network tools open takes a lot more resources on a computer. So the first time we did this, we would open up the developer tools, dump in the snippet, let it run, Mm -hmm. but leave the developer tools open, which meant that our computers were going that much slower. More resources were necessary to paint that screen and to keep it up to date. So then we figured out we should close those and then we could open way more Chromes. This is such an adventure. It was a weird combination of like a little bit frustrating because we had to go through all these hoops a little bit stressful because we're getting close to this time and we want Mm -hmm. to validate the system and make sure it will actually stand up. And we did end up tweaking a bunch of settings and Mm -hmm. refining things. And I think we're, we're in a good spot now, but there was some fun here. This is the like, I don't know, just make it work. Got to figure it out. What can we do? We can do this. And when Edward actually started to open them, I was like, this just might work. (laughs) It's crazy enough to work. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on for going forward? So while this was an adventure and it worked and it helped validate some concerns, what about for the future for folks as the app continues to grow and you need to continue to test it to make sure it can handle all the requests? Part of what we run into with this particular client that we're working with is they have a lot of internal tools, which it's a double-edged sword always. They're able to make their tools very specific to their use cases and things like that. But in general, I'm not a fan of that approach. And I think broadly ThoughtBot's like, no, 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 just use Heroku and use things that exist. Don't build your own framework. That's a bad idea. Certainly don't roll your own crypto. They don't. This client does not roll their own crypto. And they don't build their own framework. Uh, We're using known frameworks and things. They can still decide to. But I think that's what we're running into here is the complexities of that. There are some additional aspects related to security. They have higher security needs than other Mm -hmm. clients. Like when we end up with healthcare clients that have HIPAA, Mm -hmm. they have real concerns. They have legal requirements that make the work more complicated. And so in some cases, that is real and unavoidable. But there's always, I think, a delicate line to walk of how much effort do we put into smoothing over that and making it so that our normal developer tools and our normal workflows and our normal processes can all still work here. So I don't have a particular answer for the situation that I'm in. I am glad to know about some of these weird tricks. And I learned a bunch along the way. Like I learned about server set events and I learned about Chrome stalling things. And this has been a fun adventure. I don't know that I have a like, well, definitively, I won't do X in the future. I don't know, fight complexity. I will continue to fight complexity. That's fair. I was just curious if you'd been through that adventure, if you'd had any moments of something else that you'd like to try next time. But yes, fighting complexity. That's a interesting one. Because it's something that, I mean, it's important. Like, I've had those moments where I've encountered something that's hard, but then I've also had that moment be like, well, if this were easy, then people wouldn't have come to ThoughtBot for help. Mm. So I really appreciate when there are complex problems to solve. They're very interesting. But I love when we don't add complexity to ourselves or to our processes, which slow us down. To me, the part of the question there is, is it inherent complexity or is it incidental or self-imposed complexity? Like sometimes developers can be prone to building big systems because it's fun. And sometimes we can convince ourselves to build more than is necessary to, I don't know, scratch a mental itch, to explore a new technology, to do things like that. And so maybe that's the thing that I'll take away here is to be all the more vigilant about avoiding that. I try to say that I want my software to be boring as much as possible. I want it to be boring. I want it to be kind of the same. I like to explore, and this sort of comes back to the creativity thing that we were talking about earlier, but my curiosity 
cannot be the reason that a system is more complex than it needs to be. Yes, I think that's an excellent way to say it. When you're making a decision for a team, you want to choose something that the team is comfortable with or that they're going to feel comfortable ramping up on versus scratching a mental itch. The mental itch is great to have for a hobby or something that you'd like to explore or if you want to have time to investigate to figure out that is going to be a good decision for your team just because something's new and complex doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong decision. But there may be some time that you want to invest or research to find out what concerns you have, what value you're going to get from that additional complexity, and then make a decision from there. But I tend to lean on the less complex side when making a decision for other people on the team. They're going to be carrying that decision forward. Speaking of scoping, have you read the article that talked about Hertz and how they're suing Accenture? I haven't read the article, but there was a a tweet sequence that I found that I think was linking to the article, but I just read the individual's tweet sequence where he broke down the sort, like analyzed it and gave his opinions. And that is quite the read. It's hard to know what to say to it. I saw the same tweet that you're mentioning and I had pulled that up. And thankfully they had linked to the actual documents, the full lawsuit text. Oh, that's interesting. I went just to the opinion on top. I think I've tended to do that. I've stopped like reading articles on the internet and I just want to hear a person talk about it. And then I'll often go back in. But that's just interesting that we went the opposite way on that. If I have the opportunity, I prefer to have the facts presented to me first so I can form my opinion. Mm. Otherwise, it's very easy to be persuaded when I read someone else's opinion. And then I just walk away from it knowing, like, okay, well, now I know what that person told me about this, but I didn't read it myself. Yep. It is a time saver, but then it feels a little less Now that you say concrete. that, I feel bad about my approach. No, <laughs> no I, I think you're right, because that idea of biasing and anything that I think about this now is biased by the person's tweets that I read, who was very eloquent and I think did a great job of summarizing things. But the story in my head is definitely the one that they told me. Right. You have their voice in your head from reading it versus if you had time to form your own. So I just like going directly to the documents when I have that option. But there's a lot there. It's very in-depth. It's very interesting. And as I was reading through it, it's one of those incidents where It's like if you see something bad happen and you feel terrible and you're watching it happen, but you can't look away from it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those moments. And so I want to read it and have an idea of like what went wrong for this team. And unfortunately, we'll never fully know since I wasn't there and I'm not a part of that experience. But it is interesting watching the things that they've highlighted and... Yeah, what what thoughts do you have from the bits that you've read? So similarly, I try to not be a person on the internet who's just chasing down like, well, this is a story about some something going bad for someone. But in this particular case, it seemed to be very relevant and very topical and that there were a lot of specific things to highlight. And so the things that stood out to me were what sounded like very much waterfall process, mm-hmm. driving towards a big whiz-bang launch. Like everything was going to go live on this day. There's also a lot of talk about services and integrations, but those services not existing. Just just countless things that we have run into many times and that we see. And honestly, part of my goal in things like this is to strengthen my experiential set, my reference set of times that I know that a particular approach has gone poorly. I hate when I'm like, intuitively, what you're saying feels wrong to me, but I don't, I can't base that on anything. So I guess we'll just do the thing that I disagree with because without having something to point to, I'm I don't like to just go on my opinions. I feel bad about that. That's not a thing that I want to do. So partly maybe this is just me collecting a relevant anecdote. Yeah, I've had those moments where, especially with consulting, part of the fun challenge of consulting is when people push back on the ideas that you have. And if you're used to working with like-minded individuals, you're not used to having someone push back on the way that you do things. 
So it's nice to have that reminder when someone challenges you as to like, oh, well, why do you like to do it this way? And then validate like, well, these are the reasons this works for me. So I can see how reading this sort of like adds to that idea of like, this is why this could be a poor process. One of the things that really caught my attention when I was going through the documents is that Hertz decided that Accenture was going to act as a product owner for all the software. And that's so backwards from how I'm used to working on software, where those that are the most invested in building an application are the ones that are going to be very involved. One of the things that we do in the design sprints that I really enjoy is that when we're deciding what we're going to build and we're working with a team, the team's not here to have ThoughtBot's opinion based on like what we think they should build. It is a very collaborative, like, well, what do you think? Like, well, what do you think the next step should be? And we'll get feedback from users and discuss that feedback amongst ourselves. And then come to a conclusion with the clients that we're working with as to what we want to build next. It's never based on what we think. So I think it's interesting that Hertz went to a center and said, hey, well, we really want to build this very important part of our business, but we want you to own that process and make all the decisions on our behalf. And I may be simplifying it, but just based on the documents that I read, that's what I saw. It's hard to know exactly what's happening, but as far as I understand it, the thing that we're seeing is Hertz's accusations. So it is certainly going to cast a more negative light than potentially might be true, or it's it's one side of the story. So we don't actually know the entirety of it, and we may never know the entirety of it. In fact, we certainly won't because we weren't there, like you said. But to continue, like everything you were saying about product owner, that in my experience is when ThoughtBot has the best engagements is when we have that strong relationship with someone who is the stakeholder who can truly speak for the needs of the product and ideally is actually speaking for the needs of the user, not like, well, I am product owner and I know what's best. But the other thing that's interesting is that even within an organization, say like Hertz had great product ownership, but then Accenture is doing the development. If you're imagining those as two very separate camps and the people thinking about how the thing should work, sit in a room, have a bunch of meetings, and then they define it and they do mock-ups and they hand that over to the developers and then say, developers, go in a room for three months and build that. Like that is waterfall to put the name to it. But it Mm -hmm. also, I see even smaller forms of that where developers are not involved in product decisions, even in terms of like sitting in the room or having ever seen a customer. Customers are these, those are elsewhere. We're firewall the developers from the customers because I think that is a more subtle but dangerous form of the same thing. We want to have connection and continuity across that. Like I think I do by far my best work when I have a better understanding of the customers and an empathy for the real thing that we're building. And if the thing that I'm building is, well, it's an API gateway for the microservice architecture layer. I know I talk about SOA too much, but that sort of decomposition of a system into just these little functional parts and you can just focus in and not have to care about a user's experience through it. That is the thing that I feel leads to potential problems like this. You reminded me that the current client that I'm working with as we're wrapping down this week, they had mentioned that one of their biggest wins from working with us this last couple of months is they've convinced their sales team that engineers should talk to users. And I thought that was such a big win and they were very excited as well because up until that point, sales was very adamant that we are the ones that talk to users, we know their needs, we know what they're thinking, and then we'll let you know what we think should be built next to help them. But after we went through the user interviews and the engineers were the ones going to sales saying, hey, we have this information and these interviews that you can listen to with the users and we have thoughts on what how the product should be built and what features to add. And the sales team was like, yeah, this is great. We would like to include you in talking to the users as well. And that was a huge win. Fantastic. And I think a very important part. That's mm-hmm. awesome. If not, like those sort of cultural shifts can be like, we often go to places and our job is to write code and our output can sort of be measured in that. But I'm always 
so much more interested when we're able to help impart change like that. Fundamental process or just way of thinking about the work changes are great. Yeah, I was very excited for them. And then circling back to um, the idea of like ramping down a project, those are the types of things that I'll think about. It's like, what impact have we managed to have with the team while we're working on that project? And it often is related more to processes than necessarily just the fact that we delivered some code that they'll continue forward, but it's how their team is going to continue working together and what processes are going to adopt that they've learned from us that they enjoyed. I think that's a, a big important part of it. So when I was reading the the lawsuit from Hertz, one of the other parts I was looking for, just going on the theme of scoping, is I was curious because they'd worked on it for a couple of years and I saw that the deadlines had been pushed out, but I couldn't help but wonder, had they had an initial idea of let's build a small thing, let's build an MVP, let's ship that, let's show it to somebody, let's iterate on it. And I can't tell from the documents if they ever had that goal in mind. It does look like they had some initial contract obligations within the first four months. They were going to do some user testing and that they were going to then show that to Hertz and say this is what the users have told us that they would like to have. And then after that, the next four months, they were going to build something and have a deliverable. But from what I can tell, I don't think there was anything that was truly delivered. There was never that process of creating something pushing it out to the world, getting some feedback, making sure that Hertz is seeing as well and that they have a chance to respond to it. It felt like they had, as you'd mentioned, the waterfall approach where they handed it over the fence and they were just letting someone work on it for a year or two. And then they were surprised when in that year or two, things hadn't gone well. A year or two is so long. <laughs> so long. I, I think it was just under two years. I think it's how long the engagement was. I can't imagine working on software for that long and not having it hit any version of reality. And I think they Mm. had a very high goal where they were trying to build a website, a couple of mobile applications, but then they also wanted to be extensible to then spread to some of their other companies like Thrifty and a few others that I can't think of Oh, like do white label or theming of it? I think it's the theming. They'd mentioned Mm. more it was around like the styling and logos. And that seems completely reasonable, but it also my gut instinct is build it for one focus first and then get feedback and iterate from there. And then when you're ready, you start to branch out to bring in the others. But it sounds like they just, they went really big up front thinking they could build it all before getting feedback on smaller pieces. And it's an interesting misconception that people have with software, the idea that you can build it all at once and then it's just going to work. Yep. You just, you build all the pieces and then one day you connect them all together and congratulations. It's great. Yeah, we'll certainly link to it because I I think both of us had the same experience of we read it and we were like, there's so much here. I'm not even sure what to do with it. But I I think we both found it to be a very useful thing to, to review and just kind of have in the back of our minds. So we will share that with the listeners as well. So you're going to RailsConf pretty soon. Yeah, I'm going to give a talk or a workshop on Git. I'm going to record a bunch of these bike sheds. So we've scheduled with five different speakers from the conference. I'm very excited to meet a bunch of them to get to talk to them. But so we'll record all of those. We're also going to record a 200th anniversary special episode out in the field, literally in a sculpture garden. That sounds exciting. Yeah, talking with folks. But so what that means for the next couple of weeks of episodes. So this episode will go live. We're recording it now before RailsConf. I'm just about to go to that, but this will come out after RailsConf. And then for the next couple of weeks, we're going to alternate. So there'll be one of those recordings from RailsConf, and then the week after it'll be you and I, and then RailsConf guests. And so we'll alternate back and forth. And then uh, once we go through all of those, then it'll just be back to you and I chatting about code and things moving forward. But yeah, that's the plan. 
That's exciting. How are you feeling about your talk? Feeling good about the talk. I'm excited to give it, which is always the good. Like I, I have been a little bit more concerned, but it's coming together and I'm finding the examples. And it's about Git, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm really hopeful that I can do the thing that I want to do, which is I want to get people to confident. That's my like North Star is if people feel confident with Git, then I've done my job and I hope I can achieve that goal. I'm frankly more concerned about all of the recordings. I want to make sure I'm sufficiently prepared and have questions, but I'm also ready for, you know, the natural conversation that comes. And so there's a bunch to do in the coming days, but I'm also incredibly excited and I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak to all these people and to meet people at the conference. And this is my first RailsConf as well. I've never been. So Really? Yeah. This is your very first RailsConf? My very first RailsConf. That so, shocks me. Yes. shocks me too. I really should have gone at some point. I've only gone to three other conferences prior to this, two of which were last year. So I've just not really gone to many conferences, but I've been trying to do it more. And I've really enjoyed the experience of getting out there and meeting more people in the community and you know making connections and things like that. So I'm excited. That's a busy first Rails conference. Ugh. You're going to give a workshop. No, it's going to be fine. You're going I'm going to record. Be, I'm, there's going to be one day where I'm giving a 90-minute workshop, recording four bike sheds, and then going out to do the community meetup one. So that's going to be another round of recording. And I'm legitimately concerned for my voice. Like, there's got to be some, I don't know, honey tea or something that I should be drinking all day. or I, I don't know. But I'm also extremely excited about it. So I think you'll still need to go to Rails conference after this one because you won't have actually experienced it. <laughs> RailsConf the doing and then RailsConf the experiencing different, yeah. Yeah, so the, again, this will come out after, but I hope I've met some of you in the week's interstitial times weird, but yeah. Well, cool. Shall we wrap up? Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach out at at underscore bikeshed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm Chris Toomey on Twitter or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.